0: Welcome, everyone, to this special episode of the On Point Podcast. I'm John Briggs, Global Head of Economics and Market Strategy for NatWest. This year has clearly presented a growing list of unprecedented risks and challenges for both investors and corporates. The war in Ukraine, global supply chain issues, inflation, rising borrowing costs, broadly turbulent market conditions, just to name a few, are weighing heavily on the minds of financial leaders, and uncertainty around how and when these challenges will be resolved remains high. Today, we're going to focus on how companies can make their fundraising strategies more resilient in the face of these risks and challenges. And for that, I'm fortunate to be joined by Carla Floyd, NatWest Head of Debt and Financing Solutions, and James Taylor, our Head of Primary Capital Markets, both experts in their own right when it comes to navigating fundraising risks, but also anticipating how broader macroeconomic trends affect global debt capital markets. Perhaps a good place to begin is with the one word everyone's most focused on, inflation, and link closely with that, rising interest rates and bond yields. Quickly as a preface, at NetWest, we see inflation having peaked in the U.S. and starting to come down. The question is now at what pace? While in the U.K. and Europe, inflationary pressures remain high, but there's also a larger impact on consumers via the cost shock, an uncomfortable situation to say the least. So with that backdrop, James, I'm going to direct my first question to you. So how are inflation and the rates backdrop in general impacting investor behavior from your standpoint?
1: Thanks, John. Thank you for, for the intro. So yeah, I guess we're starting with, you know, with, with a pretty big question there. But as you say, is um, is also hugely topical. And I think the, you know, the short answer is that it's dramatically impacting investors' behavior. And you know, we've had 14 years of, of easy monetary policy and central bank support. So. I guess it's to be expected that as that turns, you're going to see some pretty meaningful shifts in the way that investors are positioning. Let me just try and sort of draw out a few of the the main changes in behaviour that that we've seen certainly over the the year-to-date period. I think the first one is that some of the duration sensitivity is now turning into credit risk sensitivity. So I think investors are asking themselves at what point do higher rates pose a threat to growth and ultimately to default risk? as far as creditors are concerned. And I think there's heightened sensitivity to those credits, which are more vulnerable in a slower growth, a less monetary support type environment. I think the second and obviously related um, impact to investor behavior is around them charging higher risk premiums, which is manifesting both in terms of wider credit spreads, but also in terms of higher new issue concessions. When and in a scenario like we're in now, where there's more uncertainty around the path for interest rates and indeed inflation, the spread premium that investors are, are asking for in order to be compensated for some of that uncertainty and volatility is, is higher. So if you look at new issue concessions in euro-denominated investment-grade corporates, for example, which averaged five basis points last year are at about 11 basis points year today. date. Another factor i draw in here is that individual credit selection is a more important factor than, than previously. I think if you look at the you know the previous 14 years, you had central banks supporting the market. That was a tide that, that really lifted all boats. So there was limited dispersion in terms of individual issuer spread performance. And as that liquidity withdraws, you're going to see a clearer distinction between winners and losers. And from an investor perspective, more fundamental analysis and, and issuer work requires. And then the final thing that I'll mention in terms of the the way that this inflation rates backdrops and impacting investor behavior is in terms of outflows. So the higher rates are clearly hurting total returns. And in some cases, that's prompting fund outflows. And just having less cash in the system is also contributing to some of this higher volatility and, and spread pressure. Um, so a big question to uh, to start us with there, John, but um, hopefully a, an answer that, that gives you a little bit of context.
0: That's great context, James. So Carla, that, that's James talked about investor behavior. So let's switch to the issuer side of things real quick. So how do issuers manage, you know, the reality that issuance windows and conditions are much less predictable in the past and dealing with this market volatility, especially.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it's a really interesting dynamic. And, and I guess the overarching sort of theme that, that has actually been ever present in, in the past few years through COVID and, and, and more recently um, is the, is the theme of flexibility um, that comes in in kind of a number of different guises. So firstly, in terms of the product, so some of our, our traditional um, funding products would, may not be available to an issuer at a given point in time when, when the funding need arises. So that ability to pivot between different products, whether that be in the capital markets or, or using sort of short-term liquidity from, from your banks, um, it is, is clearly there. And I think that builds on, on the concept of funding diversification, which was, a, was certainly a key theme um, over the past few years. Within that sort of concept of flexibility also comes around um, currency, uh, you know, looking at the relative value of, of different currencies to, to sort of achieve the same funding need is, is absolutely a, a core theme and discussion um, with many of our issuers at the moment. And then The final one that I I would sort of touch upon would be internal governance and approvals. So making sure that that you sort of have everything from a a policy and and, and approvals perspective ready to move quickly to the extent that that a window manifests itself. That's sort of all around the, the concept of flexibility. But beyond that, that there are some um, proactive things that, that issuers can do at the moment, which will, um, you know, support and, and sort of free up and, or allow that flexibility to play out in practice. And things like that could be around, um, you know, the approach to blackout periods, um, invest in non-deal marketing and, and roadshows. That's a clear theme that, that we've seen work very successfully. And, and sort of the outcome of that means that we can, move very quickly from, um, you know, pulling the trigger or having that conversation with your um, with your banks around wanting to go live to actually coming to um, pricing a bond and, and maximizing the, um, you know, the investor appetite and and sort of positive sentiment where, where we see those windows being much shorter um, and, and therefore the ability to, to capitalize on them. So I think there's a, a number of different areas and themes that, that are kind of irrelevant here, but they all come um, under the umbrella of flexibility and, and position and being open-minded around um, both product currency and, um, and process.
0: All right. Honing in a little bit on that flexibility on the product side of things, um, from your perspective, are there you know markets, products, funding opportunities that you think is showing a little bit more resilience perhaps to some of the market pressures that James was talking about?
2: Yeah, absolutely, and 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 probably the, the the clearest example of that is is the pivot back or, or the the use we've seen at the private placement market and and the USPP market. I mean, certainly if if you take corporate IG volumes, which are um, year on year around twenty percent down in the UK, it, it's it's actually much more um, significant than that. It's it's sixty percent down. That that hasn't that's probably not reflective of what we're seeing in in some of the other products. So. Um, you know, USPPs probably got, got some criticism through COVID around lack of flexibility, particularly around covenant waivers and, um, and processes in light of some of um, you know, the market challenges that presented um, over the past few years. But actually what we've seen in, in the past six months is they've been a, a really um, you know, critical source of liquidity um, with high levels of appetite and flexibility um, around structure. And with that, the ability to um, achieve some some standout pricing. Um, Probably some of the other um, sort of funding opportunities that that we've seen are around taps um, and and targeting short-term uh, financing and, and you know I mentioned it in my previous answer but also that relationship and the ability to to move between those markets to, to fund short-term funding needs with a, a longer term um, sort of capital structure and, and ambition and the, the, the bank market has been and remains um, you know very um, constructive and, and, and sort of supportive of the UK corporate landscape and I think that the interplay between those different markets is, is critical
0: here. That's great, Carla. Thank you. So, James, going back to something you also mentioned from the investor perspective, and it's somewhat related, I guess, to the credit selection side of things, but you know, given all the changes and the turbulence in markets and obviously the, the squeeze in energy prices and things like that, yeah, have you seen much of a shift? Or let me let me phrase it this way. Um, when investors look at ESG consider- considerations, given all the outperformance you're seeing in let's just call it less ESG-aligned sectors, oil, gas, certain other commodities. Are investors changing their approach to that or reconsidering things, or is, is it just a short-term dynamic within a longer-term theme, you think? Yeah, so this,
1: this for me is a really interesting one, because since the, the ESG uh, revolution has, has really taken off over the last few years, you haven't had a prolonged period of time where ESG-linked instruments have, have underperformed. Generally speaking, they have outperformed the, the market for some structural reasons and some fundamental reasons in terms of there, there being just fundamentally uh, stronger credits and the correlation between a, a high ESG score and, uh, and a good credit quality. So this is the first time that we've ever seen ESG, uh, let's say, linked or related sectors underperformed to, to some degree. And I think that this is a, an interesting question, but also one that probably has a pretty direct answer, John, and that's the, the, what you alluded to. I think this is just a, a short-term phenomenon within a, within a longer-term structural shift. I don't think that the move towards ESG certainly transcends what we've seen in terms of individual security performance over the, over the last few months. And if you think about how entrenched this, this direction of travel is now, you have an increasing regulatory push. You know, As you know, the SEC... Is proposing in, in the US for, for further disclosure around ESG. You've got a huge number of investors now that are signed up to environmental pledges. And of course, they need some short term flexibility to manage uh, the, the way that the market's moving. But over the longer term, those are pledges and promises that, that clearly won't reverse. And the other interesting anecdote that we're hearing in in several places at the moment is that at this point in Europe any new funds that that are started that don't have an ESG purpose or consideration are are largely uh, commercially unmarketable and so really having that alignment with with ESG is is becoming a a commercial necessity irrespective of of, of your point that some of the the less ESG aligned sectors have outperformed year to date. The, The other point I would make here is that even though we've seen a little bit of of underperformance in in some ESG-related assets year-to-date, there's very few funds that are telling us that they're loosening their exclusion policies. What is quite interesting is that with non-exclusionary funds, they are a little bit more willing to look at at different types of of energy production, and I would say a slightly more open to a wider range of energy sources as part of the transition to renewables. So gas and, and nuclear in the in the short to medium term, really recognising that the transition towards renewables needs a, a stepping stone, and that actually supporting some of those industries through the, through the transition is, uh, is, is net beneficial towards uh, a more sustainable climate going forward. And it's also notable that the e-taxonomy expanded in January the list of energy sources to include gas and nuclear in specific situations. So you are seeing a little bit of a, of a change there in terms of some of the, uh, the, the way that energy is, is, is being thought about. Probably the final point I'll mention on, on this question, John, is that we're dealing with, I guess, a, a six-month or a five-month period, depending on when you, 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 you sort of look at the, the period of stress that we've had here today. If you go back to peak COVID, ESG-linked instruments and ESG-related credits significantly outperformed. There were times when the only bid that investors were able to get was on an ESG-labeled asset, and I think that lives long in the memory. So though we've had a a period of of marginal underperformance, I think there is a a pretty deep rooted belief that if we see real market stress, acute market stress, then ESG-labeled and ESG-related credits are are likely to, to, to fare well.
0: Yeah, it's an important point that you know your ESG-linked assets are probably gonna have a stronger bid in times of stress, and that certainly was the case. So, all right, sticking with the sector conversation, but slightly different. Um, given like the supply chain challenges and coming back to the whole inflation question, yeah, I'm gonna keep hitting you with that. Um, are you seeing investors changing their preferences regarding different sectors, um, given some of the issues here with supply chains and inflation?
1: Yes, this is actually one where it's going to be it's going to be tough to give a, a straight answer. And I think most investors would, would struggle to give you a, a straight answer there because clearly there are a couple of factors to, to consider. First and foremost, there will be a preference for sectors and issuers that are better able to pass on some of the the inflationary pressures. It's just figuring out which sectors and, and issuers are really able to do that over the, the medium longer term. that I think is is the big challenge. And then you've also got the the second order impact of cost of living living increasing, and impacting the level of consumer discretionary spend. So in traditional cycles, that would mean that some of your more cyclical sectors would uh, would would suffer. But we have an interesting we're at an interesting point in time where for a lot of those sectors there's pent up demand due to COVID. So when you think about travel and, and leisure, you would ordinarily think of them as being a little bit vulnerable in in this environment if consumers are going to have less discretionary spend, but actually that's being prioritized uh, because of, of consumers not being able to access that part of the market for, for such a long period of time during, uh, during the COVID restriction, restriction period. So I think that's a, a very difficult um, place to, to try and uh, to, to figure out exactly how that's, that's going to, to manifest. And some of the traditional assumptions around cyclical and, and counter cyclical sectors, I think are being revisited the other big uncertainty comes in in terms of how you predict some of these supply chain disruptions, in terms of the, the second and the third order impacts that really take it a lot of time to, to come through. And I think it's difficult to draw at this stage broad conclusions and say that this sector is categorically going to be a winner, and this sector is categorically going to be a loser in terms of some of these uh, some of these threats. And I think what it comes back to is something I touched on in in the first first uh, first answer which is that investors, their focus is really heightened on individual credits. It's much more difficult to, to draw those generalizations. And investors are spending more time looking into the fundamentals, the specifics of, of each individual company within their portfolio and within their coverage universe to fully understand who is able to, to pass on the inflationary pressures, who is best placed if we have a, a downturn in, in consumer spending. Um, so I guess I'm going to add an apology to that, John, because it wasn't a particularly straight one. But I think that's quite a complicated uh, topic that it's, that it's difficult to put into neat buckets.
2: And I'd probably add that it that it comes back to the, the value of that investor work um, away from a transaction. You know, being really clear around, um, you know, your your story, where you stand and your response to, um, you know, supply and chain pressures, um, you know, margin compression uh, and and the cost of living crisis is, is absolutely critical. And what we probably see is is you know and, and, and to some degree it supports um, those businesses that 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 have you know those issuers who are regular to the market and have that existing sort of scale and, and investor dialogue and presence but but by um you know putting the the time in away from a um you know a funding there so you go funding need, so you go into uh, any raise with with a high degree of understanding and certainty of, of how your credit is being perceived because there isn't that sort of one size fits all at the moment is is absolutely um you know critical to to smooth execution in this market
0: all right, so Carl, I do have a couple questions, um, or I guess one question or two on that, but I, one more difficult question for James first, um, which uh, being a forecaster, I know where this comes from. So, what is our expectation for corporate spread direction and funding costs into year end? If you were advising issuers, you said, do you recommend that they wait, or what's what do you see coming up?
1: Yeah, thanks, John. I think so. Let me just start that answer by just recapping the, the path of credit spreads year to date. Just to put it into a little bit of context, and then I I will give you a relatively straight answer in terms of where I think uh, spreads are going to go from here. So if you look at the the year-to-date trend, we're about 40 or so basis points wider on the year, if you take a broad average across uh, euros, dollars and and sterling. We're about 15 to 20 basis points inside the wides that that were touched in mid-May. And if you look on a five-year average, we're about 15 basis points wide of that five-year average. So whilst we're used to talking about credit spreads grinding tighter, and this feels like we've had a, a meaningful sell-off to be 15 basis points, only 15 basis points wide of the five-year average, I think that's a little bit of context for, for the current situation. And from here, our expectation in, into, the, into the end of the year is that credit spreads are going to be largely range-bound. We don't expect a material tightening given the withdrawal of central bank liquidity across currencies, which has just been such a central feature of of market support over the last years. So it's very difficult, I think, for us to to forecast or expect a meaningful improvement in credit spreads. But I think that any widening that we might see is going to be limited by a few factors. The first is scarce issuance. So Carla mentioned that we're 20% down in euro funding supply year on year. And we don't think that that's going to materially correct. Our forecast for supply is to finish 10% down. Uh, so it's still down on, on 2021. And I think the other factor there is that some of the, the hawkishness in, from the ECB and, and the Fed in particular has been fairly well understood and quite well priced in by the market. So I don't think that we could realistically uh, predict a, a significant widening from here. So I think you're going to see range-bound markets, but with a much higher degree of volatility than we've seen in, in previous years and that is really a feature of, of there being less monetary support which is adding an element of volatility across assets so there's going to be periods of time when the market is open and periods of time when it's not and i think for most investment grade corporates that just hasn't been the case over the last five plus years so what we would, would recommend per Carla's earlier points is that issuers really take advantage of, of those windows when they're there rather than hanging on and waiting for more favorable funding conditions, which we don't think will, will come. We don't think that you're going to sit and wait and play for 20, 30 basis points tightening in credit spreads. We, we just don't see it. So our advice would be that if there's a, a window at or around current levels where you've got low execution risk and certainty on, on the size, then we would recommend taking advantage of, of those windows. I'm conscious, John, your question was also around all in funding costs. So, just a quick note on, on our expectations for, for yields, where you'll be better placed than, than any to, to correct me if I get this wrong. But I think, in terms of 10 year yields in, in the US, we probably have a different view to Europe. In the US, our view there is that, that they've largely peaked or are trading higher than, than where we think they should. Our year end forecast there is, is for about 2.5%. Whereas in, in Europe, the significant difference is that we have the ECB stepping away. As a major buyer of European government risk. And the net supply dynamic there, irrespective of monetary policy direction in Europe, is going to push 10-year and, and longer bund yields um, higher. And our, our year-end forecast there is, is somewhere around where current yields are trading around the 1.2% level. But certainly the, the path in, in the US we think is lower, and in Europe we think there's, uh, there's potential for that to, to move higher. And I think all of this really just supports the, the prior view that where you've got good windows, uh, make sure that you've got the ability to execute flexibly on short timeframes and, and you can access the market when and where it's open.
0: Yep, you have that pretty much right. So Carla, in taking what James just went through, um, you know, and some of the comments you made earlier about flexibility and ongoing dialogues, uh, you know, in order to hit some of those windows that, that James is mentioning... Beyond that, is there anything else that you know Treasury teams can do to put themselves in the best situation to be able to jump on those opportunities, or to deal with the current current markets? Yeah,
2: so you know, I'd probably start where where James left off, and in, in, in really understanding um, you know the interest rate risk related to to an issuance. You know, for the best part of um, you know a decade or more, it, the the, sort of the clear conversation for, for treasurers has been around the credit spread, and 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 I. You know to the extent that, that, that that's range bound and, and if you look at those sort of all in funding costs the key driver of, of higher um, higher yields has, has been on the um, on, on the interest rate side and and how do you manage those in in this period of uncertainty and volatility so one of the things we are sort of increasingly seeing is is pre hedging coming back onto the table or or people at least limiting um the the, the, the upside on you um, on rate risk um, with any issuance, and 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 you know, I think it it also very much depends on your tenor aspirations. So take for example where we are, um, you know, as, as an institution on 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 gilts and and sort of impact of the Bank of England moves it is very different to where the market's priced in and what impact could that have on both the short end and the long end and that that will sort of impact and help define your strategy if you're looking at the sterling market and similarly US and and, um, you know Europe and and the the behaviour of the ECB as James alluded to I think plays a, a key dynamic there. So whilst it might not necessarily lead you to um, to, to proactively manage those risks, albeit we've definitely seen a, a marked increase in, in that type of pre-hedging activity. Having a, um, you know, a view on, on sort of tolerance levels for, um, for, for, for underlying um, government yields impacting uh, any corporate issuances is, is definitely a, a key element of, um, of, of sort of any financing and funding plan. Um, the, the other bit that it is, you know, sort of excuse the repetition on on the flexibility point, but the other bit is is really understanding the different markets and, and being ready to um, to pivot. And, and actually, one of the sort of reflections I have when I think about this is, you know, in in, in response to COVID, the um, the way that a lot of corporates, I mean, take UK corporates as, as a brilliant example of this, pivoted from um, having only been bank funded or, or perhaps touched in the in the US. Private placement market, but then you get the launch of the um, the CCFF and, and the government COVID schemes, and and how that opened up a um, you know a different approach to um, to treasury policy and, and funding platforms, and that momentum should should be continued, um, and we should be continuing, and, and you know that certainly plays to a lot of the conversations we have is what are the um, pools of liquidity across both um, you know the, the, the private um, institutional market, the bank market, et cetera, um, are relevant to support uh, your, your liquidity needs. Um, the other bit, and, and probably the only one that, it, that we haven't mentioned today, is, is, is also around the documentation in that. You know, how do you make sure that that you've got the um, you know the docs we, we've seen for example people uh, you know an increase in EMTN um, programs being implemented for debut issuers or or updated to, to give that um, required flexibility but but a lot of it in summary is um, is just remaining nimble and, and aware of the of the diff- different factors but also it's a bit of a reset it's a reset in some relatively long-standing um you know behaviors that that have been uh, you know allowed and able to to, to sort of govern a, a treasury policy over the past decade because of the sort of perpetual low rate and low volatile markets that we've been operating in it, it's a it's a definitely a different backdrop uh, and as a result that does sort of require a, a change in um in outlook and behavior but I. Uh, fundamentally, you know, if you look historically about where all in funding levels are, are still being achieved today versus you know, the noughties, I think we can, we can still take a lot of comfort that there, are, um, that, that there are some sort of attractive levels of funding there across the credit curve and across the different currencies.
0: That's great. Thanks, Carl and James. Very good advice all around. And that's all that we have time for. So I want to thank everybody for listening and for tuning into this episode of On Point. Please do subscribe to our channel to get future episodes. Navigate to www.natwest.com for any of the latest updates we have on what's moving markets and other subjects like this. We also encourage you to follow us on social media to get all of our latest content. And with that, we'll speak to you again soon. Thank you.